0: Welcome to Pastor Matters, the podcast of the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We hope this conversation will both equip and encourage you to lead healthy churches that make disciples for the glory of God.
1: Hi, I'm Brendan Ward.
2: And I'm Ron Jorlock.
1: We want to thank you for hitting the play button and joining us for another episode of Pastor Matters. I'm excited for today's conversation Ronjor because we're not alone. We are joined by Dr. Alex DePrima for our discussion today. Alex serves as the preaching pastor of Emmanuel Church in Winston Salem. He holds a PhD from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in historical theology with a concentration in the ministry of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the man we'll be discussing in today's episode. Alex brother Thank you so much for joining Ron Jure and I today to discuss the man you spent a significant amount of time studying over the years. In honor of this conversation, I have the legend himself, Mr. Charles Spurgeon, in bobblehead form, uh, joining <laughs> us today. So let's How make him proud. Exactly. Let's make him proud. But thank you, brother, for joining us.
0: Well, brothers, thanks for having me on. It's a privilege and a pleasure. I appreciate the podcast very much and, of course,
1: enjoy any opportunity to talk about Spurgeon. So, yeah. thanks for having awesome. me on. Awesome. Well, let's start to let's start that conversation. So, for those who might be unfamiliar with Spurgeon, could you spend just a few minutes explaining a little bit about his life and his ministry?
0: Yeah, certainly. So, uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, lived in the Victorian era in England. His dates are eighteen thirty-four to eighteen ninety-two. Uh, he grew up in East Anglia, the east part of England. Uh, country boy, was converted uh, when he was fifteen years old. And um, in a quite extraordinary kind of way, in a primitive Methodist chapel, um, a sort of confrontational kind of sermon, he believes the gospel. And pretty much from then on, immediately engages in uh, Christian service and work of all kinds, track distribution, teaching Sunday school, engages a member of his church. And, um, and it's not long after that, around 16, I believe, uh, in 1850, that uh, he preaches his first sermon as part of a lay preacher's association. Um, and from almost the very beginning, uh, when he starts preaching, um, it's just evident there's an anointing on, on this man. Um, boy, really, <laughs> I'm a preacher at the time. And, um, he begins to, uh, develop a reputation in the surrounding area. This is now in Cambridge, England, kind of Cambridgeshire, that county. And, um, eventually becomes a pastor of a small village church called Water Beach. It didn't stay small for long, probably about a hundred folks or so when he becomes the pastor of that church, Within 18 months or so, it grows to over 400 people. Um, And it's from there, at the age of 19, uh, he's called to pastor a historic church in London, probably one of the the main historic churches in London, Baptist churches anyway, um, at the time called the New Park Street Chapel. Uh, Famous uh, Baptists had pastored that church in the past, including Benjamin Keach, who was a well-known particular Baptist pastor, signatory of the 1689 Second London Confession. Uh, John Gill. There's a lot of recovery of interest in John Gill nowadays. A Baptist pastor there. John Rippon, who's most known, I think, for his hymns more than anything. So this this kind of storied church, but this church was in decline by the time Spurgeon gets there, and um, the, the Lord brings about an extraordinary revival through Spurgeon's ministry. Uh, and so between the, the time Spurgeon gets there in uh, 1854 uh, to the end of his ministry in 1892, the church grows from 232 members to well over 5,000. Uh, And he pastors that church for 38 years faithfully, Mm. is known most for his preaching. He preaches um, probably 10,000 sermons over the course of his life. He's preaching six to eight times a week at the Mm. the height of his ministry. Um, He writes about 150 books, uh, releases a monthly magazine. It's kind of like his blog or his podcast back in those days. He's just an extraordinary, fruitful preacher, a leader among Baptists, a leader among evangelicals. Um, but just an extraordinary witness, Mm -hmm. uh, primarily through his preaching and his writing in the heart of London uh, for, again, nearly 40 years uh, as the pastor of what became the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the church changes its name, it moves locations, and that church is still there today, and it's thriving. Um, They probably have over a 1,000 people attending on Sundays. When I was last there, uh, I think they were translating into seven or eight languages live Mm -hmm. on Sunday mornings. Uh, So that church still has a pretty extraordinary Heritage and legacy and ministry in the heart of London. So, um, yeah, that's a bit about who Spurgeon is. Mm.
2: So, what made you want to study Spurgeon? I mean, obviously, you've you've almost given us a, a grocery list of reasons right there. Uh, what what made you uh, personally want to study him and and his life? Uh, wh- when did you first become interested in Charles Spurgeon?
0: Well, uh, the answer is, is kind of prosaic. It's it's not it's not like. Uh, i had some great discovery someday and i thought oh (laughs) you know here's this extraordinary thing and i'm going to study this it was the beard alex Uh, it was the beard. yeah yeah, sure i grew up in a context that really loved spurgeon i grew up in a particular baptist church reformed baptist church as a kid Mm -hmm. and spurgeon was kind of like the background music that was always playing in my life he was quoted often his books were recommended his sermons were recommended Uh, his story was told I think the church I was in, we would have felt ourselves very much in the Spurgeonic heritage, theologically and otherwise. And so he was just very revered and and I grew up aware of him. I remember one year, maybe in high school, I received a set of his sermons for Christmas from my grandmother. So I I just, he was always there. He was always around. It's kind of like I tell people, you know, your parents, they had these like old records that they would listen to and, um, it was like your parents' music. And then at some point you realize, oh, Led Zeppelin's actually pretty cool, you know, <laughs> and you start listening to those records for yourself. This guy was kind of my experience with Spurgeon. Like he was just, he was just, you know, my pastors, folks I love, my teachers, they, they love Spurgeon. And then eventually I just kind of grew into that uh, appreciation. But then the story of why I started studying him is super humdrum. Uh, Nathan Finn, who has been a professor at Southeastern in the past, mm-hmm. I just followed Nathan around at, at, uh, uh Southeastern, I should say Dr. Finn. He's a personal friend, you know, but uh, Dr. Finn. Uh, I'd fallen around at Southeastern when I was doing my MDiv. At some point, he started talking to me about doing a PhD. I'd never thought about doing a PhD. I, I came from, from uh, like my family, no one really went to college. My parents barely graduated high school. It, it wasn't in the cards to do scholarship for me. I never thought along those lines. But um, uh, Dr. Finn started talking to me about doing a, a doctorate. And I said, um, Look, I'm willing to do it as long as I can do it on someone that um, is big. I didn't want to do it on someone uh, minor. I wanted to to give my attention to someone who could sort of um, take up a lifetime of thought and then um, someone who would be edifying to work with. Uh, And and, I mean, you could do worse than read Spurgeon's sermons for five years. I mean, Mm -hmm. uh, I was just worshiping as I studied and was helped and shaped by the study itself, even as I, I tried to make a contribution to scholarship. So that's yeah. that's kind of my interest in Spurgeon.
1: Hmm. So we're talking about a preacher from the 19th century today. Uh, what makes Spurgeon so relevant, even today? Why is, why is Spurgeon so historically significant?
0: Well, I, I see those as somewhat two different questions, because what's historically significant um, is in some ways those who are historically significant are sort of perennially significant and then who's relevant in a given generation i mean that could kind of come and go right right? Uh, that depends on the climate of the culture spurgeon is historically significant uh for a number of reasons i mean i think he was the foremost evangelical i'd say probably in the world in the 19th century i can't think of an evangelical who was more prominent than spurgeon if you're familiar with the work of david bevington he sort of makes the point that the 19th century was kind of the dominance of the evangelical movement and that was that was the uh, evangelicalism in its heyday, and no one's bigger than Spurgeon, I think, in that movement. So he's a, he's huge as an evangelical and understanding evangelicalism. He's I, It's hard to think of anyone bigger, especially in the 19th century, uh, in terms of Baptist thought. Um, and more than that, he's the pastor of the largest church in Christendom throughout uh, most of the 19th century. So the Metropolitan Tabernacle is just, in, in terms of its influence, its size, it's just enormous. And he's leading that congregation, and he does it for four decades. And... Since then, his, especially through his preaching and sermons, he's he's maintained extraordinary relevance. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. I think that Spurgeon's sermons are especially relevant because uh, primarily of their Christ-centeredness mm. and how pronounced the emphasis on the cross and the atonement is in those sermons. And, and here's the thing. Spurgeon is loved and admired and appreciated by just about everybody. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's revered by Calvinists and Arminians alike all throughout the 20th century by Baptists and Presbyterians by dispensationalists and people who tend to be more covenantal in their thinking. Um, everybody just loves Spurgeon and everyone wants Spurgeon on their side. Everyone's drawing edification from his preaching. And he's commended, um, by so many different folks from across the evangelical spectrum, uh, throughout the 20th century. And I think it's Christ centeredness at the heart of that. I would just want to say also guys, the, the, um, I was talking to someone recently about this, I think there's a lesson to be learned in terms of um, long term relevance in Spurgeon in this sense, Spurgeon mastered the English language. Mm -hmm. And I I think there is this kind of sort of inane and insipid sort of um, vibe about that the way to sort of be relevant, uh, the surest way to secure relevance in the present day is sort of dumb things down to sort of the lowest common denominator, slang, colloquial way of speaking. And I just totally eschewed that. I don't think that's true at all. Mm. One of the reasons Spurgeon has maintained relevance because he read poetry and he mastered Shakespeare and he speaks about the things of God in dignified and majestic and muscular language that sort of elevates our sense of God and his grace and who he is and our own sinfulness and unworthiness and how how glorious the Lord is and his sovereignty and in his mercy towards sinners. And so he reads. You read him today, and it just sort of dignifies the things of God, right. and it sort of ennobles your own thoughts about the Lord and your sense of His grace. And I just encourage preachers listening to this: don't dumb down the message. Use strong and descriptive, and powerful, profound language to to describe and capture the things of God. I think that's one way to sort of um, engender relevance for future generations.
2: Mm. You know, if I could add to that. Uh, along with th- just what you're talking about, you know the 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 majesty of of mm. his language. There's also a clarity and a simplicity Amen. to his language too, and that is a profound tightrope yeah. <laughs> to walk. I mean, oh yeah, how in oh, yeah. the well world said. can you be high and lofty? And and grand in your in your in your talk in your communication about God, while at the same time you he could throw an illustration that is the simplest and clearest illustration that a four year old would understand.
0: How to how to keep I, I those worlds
2: together is amazing.
0: I think that's a shrewd observation, Rajor. I think that that those two pieces coming together are sort of definitive of Spragonic preaching—the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. sort of profound language describing God, even Shakespearean poetic language describing the things of God and penetrating simplicity and clarity is compelling. Uh, yeah, I, I think I think that's a fantastic point. And just along those lines, a, a nice little historical note, um, J.C. Ryle, who was a contemporary of mm-hmm. Spurgeon, mm-hmm. wrote a book, Thoughts for Young Men, book on holiness, tremendous writer, pastor, preacher. He wrote a little tract called Simplicity in Preaching. I can't commend it enough. I may have even read it while at Southeastern if I have to. And um, he commends Spurgeon. As as an example in there of um, you know go to Spurgeon he's a he's a wonderful example of simplicity in preaching not simple in the sense of foolish or immature but simple in the sense of clear compelling plain truth you know that comes through in his preaching
3: yeah yeah
1: I confess like I did not know a whole lot about Spurgeon until actually coming to Southeastern most of my attention things that I read were 16th century deep Reformation stuff so. When I came to Southeastern, that was where I discovered in a lot of ways who Spurgeon was. You know, There was the quotes that I had seen from him that I had you know, tweeted multiple times. But it wasn't until reading – and anything I did know about him had to do with his preaching. It wasn't until I read Arnold uh, Dallimore's biography on him that I'm like, oh, man, there is much more to this guy than mm-hmm. I thought. Uh, so mm-hmm. when we talk about Spurgeon, we do that a lot. We we tend to lean on his preaching, the fact that he was a fabulous preacher, that he would draw crowds. But why is it important for us to also consider Spurgeon as the pastor?
0: Mm. Well, it's interesting you you frame it that way, Brandon. Um, you all may have seen uh, Dr. Jeff Chang at Midwestern. Mm-hmm. just came out with a tremendous book. It's yeah. actually the title is Spurgeon the Pastor. Yeah. Like just re- hot off the press. Biblical Vision for Pastoral Ministry, something like that. You should you should definitely have Jeff on at some point if you've not already. Uh, I think that he's done groundbreaking work in that book. I mean, it's it's not primarily a work of scholarship, but he does some heavy lifting in the footnotes of that book as well. And just, uh, I think, is introduced to a new generation of pastors, preachers, seminarians, students, um, this exact thing. That Spurgeon was a whole lot more than a preacher. Mm. He was a pastor of a church. You know, it's interesting, Spurgeon's often compared to George Whitfield. It was actually, I think, the first biography of Spurgeon Came out when he was twenty-one years old, and it, it called in the modern Whitfield or something like that. But there's a way in which Spurgeon is very dissimilar from Whitfield. Whitfield itinerated his whole career. Sure, uh, he was a pastor of a church for maybe a brief time, I think, but really wasn't pastor of a church. What I think is so extraordinary about Spurgeon is he's not always you're preaching in open fields and to other churches to new audiences. Uh, though he does preach to new people all the time, mm-hmm. he plants himself in London and captivates an audience there and keeps them for 40 years. He pastors the same church. I mean, there's really not someone like that that grows a massive congregation over a couple of generations and keeps them Mm -hmm. uh, for all of those years. And he's preaching to 6,000 in the morning, 6,000 in the evening. Often you would not have many of the same people in those two services. Um, and, And he holds their attention. And there's so much variety and depth to his preaching that he keeps them for those years. But you're right, Spurgeon was a pastor of that church. And, um, I think it's, it's, it's what a lot of people can miss. They're just so sort of overwhelmed by the preaching component of his ministry. Um, that church was extraordinarily well-run. It was not just a preaching center where people came to hear Spurgeon and left. Um, Spurgeon was an organizational genius Mm. and he was a shepherd of that flock and organized systems and structures to care for the members of that church. And so he actually is the first one to introduce elders at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, right? Um, they, they had kind of the traditional model in Baptist life in those days of one pastor and a bunch of deacons. And his deacons were extraordinary men, but he, he realized that we need uh, biblical elders to join you know, this body who can care for the spiritual nurture of the flock. So he introduces elders, and um, those men, uh, they have terms, and they sort of rotate in and out. but They're chosen by the congregation, and they're especially tasked with the care of the flock. And they had very um, robust regimented membership protocols and policies. Spurgeon did most of the pastoral interviews for all the members who joined the tabernacle, he knew the members by name and they organized systems whereby members were visited and cared for, especially coming into the church. It was a very thorough process. Every member was vetted, had multiple interviews with elders and with Spurgeon. Uh, If someone was to join as a member, they would be proposed at a members meeting. And then they would design, they would assign a member or an officer of the church to go and visit that person unannounced during the week in their home and then to visit their place of work or their place of business or whatever. To Okay, here's John Brown. Uh, you know, tell me, do you know John Brown? What's his reputation like here in the neighborhood? What's his reputation like here at work? And then there would be a report. That individual would be interviewed before the congregation. Uh, they would give their report on that person. And then the member themselves, the kind of a candidate, would be interviewed before the congregation, give their testimony, and then they'd vote on that member. They're doing that, I think, over the course of Spirit's life. They've taken something like 14,000 members. Yeah, which is just um,
1: amazing. Like That's something that just stood out to me was the fact that like, with the size of this church, they were doing all of those things to protect the church.
0: Which, yeah, and it's an average of more than one person per day over the course of his ministry. Right. But they're taking all these members. He's interviewing them. There's this careful process of making sure that these people are truly converted, and have a good reputation among outsiders. And then there were very uh, well thought through mechanisms of accountability, Once members were brought in. They actually issued tickets for uh, participation at the communion table. And so if someone, uh, they would actually have a, like a card, like a stamp card, like when you go to like a rewards program at your mm-hmm. favorite coffee shop. Yeah, it wasn't, you know, they, they, they had a way of tracking whether people were attending, whether they were present at communion. And if someone was not present for like three straight communion services, They would investigate what's going on. How are you doing? They'd go visit that person. They exercised church discipline. They were an accountable church body. And so Spurgeon is very involved in organizing all of that and administrating all of that because he believed the church was responsible to care for the church body. And the members were accountable to one another and they covenanted together and were accountable to one another. And, um, and also, I think this is important, especially in our day of – I don't love the term, but we talk about celebrity pastors, and we have sometimes pastors that are larger than life. Spurgeon was a celebrity pastor, and he was larger than life. and He did itinerate to some degree, but he always viewed the Metropolitan Tabernacle as his flock and the people to whom he was – for whom and to whom he was answerable mm. uh, before Christ and before mm. that flock and before his fellow officers. And um, there was a special stewardship he exercised in caring for that congregation. And so we have all these letters; he would write letters to his congregation, and um, annual minutes of the kind of the business meetings. And you just uh, hear and sense the affection with which he communicated with his congregation. How he prayed for them, how he spoke to them—that was his flock. And he had this sense: I'm going to appear before the bar of Christ for this congregation. I'm going to answer for the souls under my care. And I don't want to have any reason to be ashamed when I stand before Christ as his under shepherd uh, who's been given temporary stewardship and supervision of these souls. He took that very seriously. There's so much to learn there in terms of his pastoral ministry. Mm-hmm. And, and I would say uh, Jeff Chang is the expert in this. He's the guy I would direct you to. His book is superb, and he's been speaking about this on podcasts and things would highly recommend his book on this topic.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, So how has he, how how has Spurgeon, uh, I'm I'm sure we could have another podcast on how Jeff has affected you, but how has uh, Spurgeon shaped you as a pastor, you personally? How how has he helped you in your love and your affection for the local church? Mm. Well,
0: yeah, I mean, that's a, a personal question that I'll answer in a personal way. I mean, there's all kinds of the obvious things I've, you know, benefited from Spurgeon. Um, I think a couple of things in particular. Brothers, uh, Spurgeon encountered a lot of adversity in his ministry. Mm-hmm. Suffered a lot of things. His, his wife suffered a lot physically, and he cared for her. Spurgeon suffered from depression. Spurgeon suffered from slander. All kinds of challenges in his ministry. There's lots of up and ups and downs in his ministry. And that's going to be true to some degree of any pastor. We may not suffer in the same ways as Spurgeon did, but every pastor is going to encounter adversity in the ministry. Jesus tells us this of every Christian, even we're going to encounter adversity by virtue of following uh, a Lord and a master who was crucified and was slandered and was maligned. So one of the things I've learned from Spurgeon is, is his determination just to keep preaching through it all. I can't control all the noise around my ministry. I can't control every criticism. I can't control every false thing said. I can't control whether things uh, are good or bad on the eldership right now. I can't control whether or not these men and women believe the gospel and embrace the message. I so earnestly want to preach to them, but I can get into that pulpit every Sunday and I can continue to herald Christ and I can do so through adversity. And that has been sort of a mantra in my own ministry. I've only been a pastor for five years. Um, but even the little ups and downs I've experienced in my little world, you know, compared to Spurgeon's, um, I've often thought, just keep preaching, just mm-hmm. keep preaching, uh, herald Christ, preach his word, turn to the next text, just as Spurgeon did, you know, for 40 years there in London. So that's been one big message is perseverance in preaching through all kinds of, uh, trials and difficulties. And then on a very personal note, I mentioned, I grew up in a particular Baptist context or reformed Baptist context a context that valued the doctrines of grace. And we could take Calvinism. Um, And I, I am myself a Calvinist and I I believe those doctrines are biblical, but one thing Spurgeon um, in a sort of in your face kind of way convinced me of out the gate was that there is no contradiction between the doctrines of grace and a high view of God's sovereignty and election and things like that. There's no contradiction between that body of doctrines, and the free and sincere offer of jesus christ to whosoever will believe
3: Mm -hmm. right
0: and so i just never felt at all conflicted in my own heart about believing god elects from before the foundations of the world those who will come to saving faith and i could offer to any person young or old male or female rich or poor anybody who walks through these doors anybody i meet on the street whosoever will believe upon the name of the lord jesus christ will be saved and Spurgeon, to anyone who who would want to offer the criticism, well, you, you cannot be a Calvinist and a fervent evangelist. I think Spurgeon's ministry is the ultimate refutation of that. Mm-hmm. I think this is a man who, who, who just has this bleeding heart for the lost and also believes, as the book of Acts tells us, as many as who are appointed to eternal life will be saved. A high view of the sovereignty of God need not conflict with a fervent heart of evangelism for the lost, a zeal for the lost, and a desire to make Jesus Christ known among all the peoples of the world. So I think I needed that early in my ministry. Like I said, I grew up at Calvinist. I never had kind of that cage stage thing, but, but, but I, I needed to work this out for myself, the sovereignty of God and zeal for the lost being in a happy marriage with one another. And Spurgeon, I think just modeled that so well. So that was, that was deeply impactful for me. In fact, I can say one more thing, brothers, I hate to be so long winded. I, I would also say Spurgeon again, through much adversity and through leading a congregation, going through all kinds of things, I think Spurgeon modeled for me what it looks like to be a hope-filled pastor Mm. and a heavenly-minded pastor and a faith-filled pastor. You know, Paul tells Timothy that he needs to be an example in faith Mm -hmm. for the congregation. And Spurgeon was that. He's, He's always bringing to his people heavenly perspectives. You know, Christ is building his church. God wins in the end. The hope of the gospel is sure and strong. The promises of God are true, and is preaching this very much to himself, but he was kind of the grand marshal of faith in his church, and always lifting his congregation heavenward. And I think that's the task we have as elders. A good friend of mine, Aaron Menikoff, who pastors in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, he's mm-hmm. he said to me many times, I think we have a responsibility as pastors to be sanctified optimists. Mm-hmm. I think that's true. Right. The perspective of the pastor is inherently hope-filled, and he needs to bring that to his people. Yeah. And Spurgeon's helped me with that in a wonderful way.
3: Yeah,
1: I was amazed just reading about his life. How how he was uh, Spurgeon was no stranger to these tragedies, divisions, conflict, vicious yeah. personal attacks, all of these things. But one of the things that was really striking for me was just how transparent he was about his own personal and physical struggles. I mean, you mentioned depression, all of these things. What can pastors learn from him in that?
0: Well, I think bring into an earlier question about relevance I think this is also one of the reasons why Spurgeon is so relevant today yeah here you have a preacher at the height of Victorian England getting up on a Sunday morning saying I, I doubted whether I was a Christian this morning. Hmm. I had thoughts of taking my own life this week mm-hmm. and this is this is Queen Victoria you could think doilies and big dresses mm-hmm. and English gentlemen and, and here's Spurgeon, yeah. the biggest preacher in London stenographers taking down every word he said, I mean, like every word he ever said was recorded and published, you know, and he's saying, I had suicidal thoughts this week. He, he speaks of um, uh, finding himself at the foot of the stairs in his house and weeping and not knowing the reason why, and his wife finding him there collapsed on the staircase. And that, that kind of transparency is unheard of for the most part in the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, and especially in a 19th century Englishman. So there's this extraordinary transparency and vulnerability he's willing to express with his people. And um, if I could plug one resource, Zach Eswine, mm. a little blue book called Spurgeon Sorrows, I mm-hmm. can't recommend highly enough. Mm-hmm. You, you actually are, wrote Lero's a book Passage. review
1: for that for us.
0: Oh, that's right. Of course. Yeah. Um, superb book. And um, uh, I've given that out to so many people, particularly folks who struggle with melancholy and depression. And they universally find it so helpful. Because there's if, if you've ever wrestled with depression or melancholy, there's a kind of language you learn to speak. Yeah. And and in a sense, sometimes only those who have gone through that same struggle can speak that same language. Like we've all had the experience of, of if, if we have had that particular struggle of anxiety or depression or something like that, you meet someone who struggles in the same way and it's like, oh, yes, you get this, you understand this. Well, whatever that language is, Spurgeon speaks that language. He understands that. And he speaks in a way that is proven to be helpful and fruitful to so many. So in terms of you know lessons for pastors, I think that we have to walk a fine line here. I think that pastors need to learn how to be human in their public ministry.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes.
0: And they need to know how to talk about their own struggles and to sort of work out their Christian experience sometimes, even in a public setting. But in a way that is not immature, in a way that's not sensationalistic, in a way that's not just sort of, you know, day in the life of the pastor or the pastors having his devotions up there in front of the whole congregation. Um, so we need to know how to do this. How, how do we talk about our sins publicly as the man of God before the congregation? How do we talk about our own vulnerabilities and the fact that we are ensnared by the same weaknesses as everybody else's? Um, that we are ourselves acquainted with various griefs and sorrows and heaviness of heart. Spurgeon, I think, helps us do that well. He doesn't just lament. He doesn't just, you know, throw all his weaknesses out there to show us, oh, wow, my pastor is such a mess, you know. Spurgeon knew how to talk about those things in a careful way that sort of helped people diagnose their own spiritual maladies and point them to biblical remedies and solutions. Mm. Um, So, it's it's, a, it's an art as much as a science, but I think Spurgeon models this well for us, how to be vulnerable, but how to be vulnerable well in a way that ultimately is ennobling and sanctifying and ultimately, like I said earlier, hope-filled and faith-filled and points us to biblical remedies and solutions yeah. and answers to the sorrows that we feel, much in the ways that the psalmists often do. Yeah. You know, David and other psalmists will talk about the, the plagues of their heart and the sorrows of their heart, but then they will they'll move toward this hope in God often um, that, that has been so helpful to so many. So, I don't know, yeah. that's kind of a mismatch of thoughts. Yeah. But, but I would recommend this. I guess when Spurgeon's sorrow is a great place to start trying to understand how did Spurgeon do this mm. and how might I do this in my own ministry?
1: Yeah, it's such a lesson to, to, to read Spurgeon and see that, like, his, his depression, those even physical ailments uh, didn't have an impact on his identity. It was in Christ. Like, those were things oh, that affected and. But he was cemented in his identity being in Christ, which is an encouragement for all of us that, that experience yeah, these things. And,
0: and I, I think I think there's a realism as Spurgeon. he's not surprised or knocked off balance by these things. Right. Mm-hmm. He recognizes, hey, you know, being in Christ and being a child of God doesn't make us immune to right. struggles with remaining sin and corruption, also struggles with fallen nature, uh, fallen humanity. Um, there these things will ail the children of God and they will uh, at times, uh, we will find ourselves downcast and discouraged. Satan will try to use that as an opportunity to lead us to despair. Um, but, 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 but through the grace of Christ and the sure promises of God and the power and help that he supplies, we can weather uh, the challenges of life, the difficulties of our fallen humanity, and we can find a way through even our own uh, uh, remaining struggles and sins uh, through the grace and help that Christ supplies, mm-hmm. through the church community, through the means of grace, so again, very realistic, but very hope-filled and optimistic as well.
2: You know, even on the on the other side of the emotional spectrum, uh, Spurgeon was known for for having uh, such a, an, an exuberant and, and enthusiastic joy too. And so you think, oh, yeah. we're, you know, still in Victorian England. Uh, apparently, he was known for having this this deep belly <laughs> laugh,
1: and right. he would yeah.
2: laugh in the pulpit. And appara- there have been stories that have been told of just how people were shocked that a preacher would laugh in the pulpit. Yep. Uh, it was just so now, unbecoming well, for a preacher.
0: And he, and he had tre- a tremendous sense of humor, yeah. you think that especially in his, his lectures to my students um in the sword and the trowel just an extraordinary sense of humor right that deep belly laugh and um yeah in, in a sense i mean spurgeon is a very complex man emotionally mm-hmm. but he runs the spectrum yeah. uh, emotionally of, you know hit high highs and low lows and uh, generally his disposition was full of joy joy in god joy in life thankful at all times and um and that you know Wide emotional capacity often could you know, lead him to be at times discouraged and mm-hmm, melancholy. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're right—a joy-filled pastor and um, and a, a very humorous one at that as well. Yeah, yeah. it can be you know quite hilarious.
2: Yeah, and I think for for pastors and for preachers, uh, there's there's an encouragement there that that the scriptures we hold is. They're actually. This is actually a real book, and and it's a book about real life, and it's a book for real people, and and so you can come. Uh, to the scriptures with your sorrows and 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 with your 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 anxieties and your burdens and so on. As a preacher, uh, you—he's God—is talking to you just as much as He's talking to your people. And on the other side of the spectrum, the the joy and the enthusiasm and the vibrancy of life and so on. The scriptures speak to that as well. And so, uh, you have a great opportunity not just to proclaim these joys and sorrows and so on to your people, uh, uh, but to actually engage with the living God yourself and yeah. let him walk uh, walk with you uh, through the highs and the lows of life as well. And what you'll find is that when you are going through those things and when you are experiencing life with the living God, uh, it resonates for your people. It, it, you you become as 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 you mentioned before. What Paul said to Timothy, you become an example Mm. uh, to your people um, of what it looks like to walk with the Lord through the highs and the lows of life. So yeah, yeah, Spurgeon I uh, think was very encouraging. So well said. So well said so uh one other aspect of Spurgeon's life uh, along with the writing and and the preaching and all of that was he was he also had a college uh, so he took second Timothy 2 uh, pretty seriously and and he decided to set up a college obviously being the um, the well-known pastor and preacher that he was there were plenty of folks that came uh, that wanted to hear from him that wanted to learn from him and so could you share a little bit about this uh this college uh, the Pastors College that eventually became Spurgeon College. Uh, tell us a little bit about that.
0: Yeah, so uh, over the his Ministry he, cha- he trains just shy of 900 men and by the time he dies in 1892 the college was so fruitful um, uh, over 20% of all the Baptist ministers in England and Wales uh, were Spurgeon men trained through the Pastors College. So these were men issue. who graduated from the college and had staying power in the churches that they pastored an extraordinary influence throughout uh uh britain and um it started at very small beginnings there was a man who came to him and wanted to be trained by him, started training him just meeting with him uh, i was a man who was converted in his church and then you know little by little more men were added eventually he realized there was a a, a school that was kind of being organized here And for the first four or five years or so of the college, it's really Spurgeon's pet project kind of on the side. Uh, So he brings in and and pays out of his own pocket for uh, teachers to come in and teach these men different classes. And he's supported the whole enterprise on his own. And it grows to a couple dozen guys, a few dozen guys. And um, he's using his money from publishing and things like that to support this work. Interestingly enough, he's using mostly his income from his sermon sales in America. This is the 1850s, late 1850s, and Spurgeon becomes aware. This is not really an answer to your question, Ron Jor, but I just think it's an interesting fact about his life and shows something of his integrity. He is um, he's very popular in America, selling uh, thousands and thousands of sermons and publishing books there. And he becomes aware Spurgeon was a vocal opponent of slavery. Mm-hmm. And of course, mm-hmm. slavery had been outlawed at this point in England, vestiges of it in some of the British colonies. And then, of course, it's, it's still a live and active thing in the States. And uh, he's a vocal opponent, says, I would never share communion with a slave owner. Mm-hmm. I would shoot a, sooner slave, share share communion with a murderer than a slave owner. I mean, he's just so um, full-throated in his denunciation of slavery. Sure. And um, he discovers that his publishers in America, especially in the American South, had been editing out all his references to slavery. And he's incensed by this. And I just think it's interesting. He could have kind of turned a blind eye to that, said, well, but they're still, they are still haven't edited the gospel out of my sermon. So mm-hmm. I'll let them do that. I'll continue to cash the checks, and I'll be able to pay for the training of these men for ministry. And he says, no, I'm not going to do that. He, he insists that they maintain uh, those aspects of his sermons, and he starts talking about slavery actually a whole lot more. And um, so his sermons a- across the American South begin to be banned. In fact, in North Carolina, our own state, it was illegal in 1857-58 to read Spurgeon sermons in public, wow. uh, mm. to own Spurgeon sermons privately. And so you have massive book burnings in our state, Alabama, and Mississippi. Mm. Uh, he receives death threats. If you ever come to America, you're going to find a cord wrapped around your neck. Don't come over wow. here. And um, Spurgeon loses all his sermon sales in the American South. And that. It's a tremendous financial windfall for the pastor's college. And they're kind of in crisis at the point. And that's when he begins to start raising funds for the pastor's college. And actually the, what God uses to begin to really organize the effort into the big sort of mammoth institution that it becomes, the Metropolitan Tabernacle then adopts the pastor's college as an official ministry of church and massive sort of funds start coming in in England to support the pastor's college. Mm-hmm. But I just think that's a, a good example of a godly stands, Virgin took mm-hmm. to his own hurt and to the hurt of this beloved ministry that was so vital to them. But then I see the providence of God in honoring that stand that Spurgeon made against slavery in the American South uh, to superintend that work and help that work become what it was. So the college basically, um, admission standards were very low in, in this sense. Uh, there were no educational prerequisites. Spurgeon wanted to give education to the common man in London or all across England um, and wanted to help those men gain education they couldn't otherwise get through other universities throughout uh, England. Uh, tuition was always free. Well, almost universally free of some men insisted on paying their own way, but that was never required. Tuition was free. Uh, he provided healthcare for the students, Mm. uh, even clothing books for the students. In some cases, even pocket money for them. Um, and he, he just, he found the funds and brought them in. And these men were basically educated for free. It was a two to three year program of study. They studied their languages, theology, New Testament, Old Testament pastoral ministry evangelism all those kinds of things and um uh, but he did require that those who would come in to be ministers had to have two years of experience either open air preaching or involved in sunday school ministry or itinerating in some way Uh, he famously said we don't make pastors we bring in men who already have some evidence of that ministry Mm -hmm. in themselves we want men who who already show the marks of being men who can go out from among us be pastors of churches and they planted churches he planted over the course of his ministry over 200 churches in britain alone and these were strong healthy churches they didn't just come kind of in and out of existence and pop up and down these these churches had staying power um and so you go to london today almost any baptist church you find that's been around since the 1900s um the vast likelihood is that it was planted by spurgeon um something like 75 to 80 percent of the baptist churches planted in london um between like 1860 and 1880 were planted by Spurgeon mm. uh, so an extraordinary influence on London itself and all across Britain through these men that were trained uh, so the book you'd want to go to is lectures to my students
3: mm.
0: um, that kind of the Mac book it's it's four volumes but it's contained usually in, in one volume and um uh shameless plug here so lectures to my students it's a massive book there's so much rich material in there but a lot of it's also out of date so he has Lectures on the call to the ministry and on preaching and on uh, uh, pastoral care and stuff like that. But along with it, there's these uh, lectures on like how to use your voice well in an age before amplification, right? Um, <laughs> you know how to. Uh, uh, you know, he has a lecture on preachers with slender apparatus. That's like preachers who don't have access to books, which is not really a problem we have now. So uh, recently, with H and E, I've put together. An edited volume of kind of the 10 greatest hits from lectures to my students you know a surprise had never been done so kind of selections from those lectures or selections from those lectures and uh, that'll be coming out early part of next year trying to introduce that material to you know a new audience but go to his lectures to his students and you'll get a sense of these are his friday afternoon lectures totally extemporaneous but his pastoral wisdom that comes through to those uh, students at the pastor's college. So it was a huge part of his ministry other than the Metropolitan Tabernacle, probably the most significant ministry that he gave himself to the, the pastor's college over those years. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. Uh, just in lectures, I believe the last five chapters are dealing with illustrations and anecdotes mm-hmm. and where to find them and how to, how to incorporate mm-hmm. them in your sermons and so on. I can't think there, there are some books now that are specifically on illustrations and anecdotes and so on. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I still tell folks, Spurgeon's chapters, those those five chapters or so in lectures are five of the best chapters I've ever read. And I, I'm talking 20 years ago, uh, I picked up lectures, and I still go back to those five chapters mm-hmm. for uh, illustrations. Well, I,
0: and to, to your point earlier, Ronshwar, there, there's something of that clarity and simplicity that yeah. comes through yeah. these yeah. illustrations that are still relevant today and so powerfully capture uh the major themes of the gospel of the christian life and all that so yeah very good stuff
1: mm-hmm. all right brother we're gonna let you have the final word here any final words of encouragement for pastors and church leaders listening to this podcast today
0: well i, I would say as you uh get acquainted with spurgeon spurgeon the pastor by jeff james is a great place to start dalimore's biography uh, they saw spurgeon a new biography um but I would say the best thing you can do is um, read Spurgeon's sermons. I mean, there's the the sixty three volumes the, between the New Park Street Pulpit and the Metropolitan Tabernacle Pulpit. Just buy one um, and start reading Spurgeon's sermons. When I am discouraged, when I am disappointed, when I am doubting, I go to those sermons and I get so much of Christ. Mm. And I often find myself asking at the end of a Spurgeon sermon. And I find myself asking, could Jesus Christ really be this good? Could He be this wonderful? Mm. Um, he just, He just, He just uh, um, has this aroma of Christ about Him. He just pours out of His speech and His language, and we get so much of the Lord Jesus in the, the preaching of Charles Spurgeon. So, uh, I would say, do that before you read any biography, um, before you do any other study of Spurgeon. Get a sense of His sermons and use them as a tool for your own sanctification. Uh, your own love for the gospel, your own sense as a needy sinner yourself, and your need for the grace of God. I so appreciate a, a quote from Spurgeon Every turn to again and again. It says, "When I cannot come to God as a well-assured saint, I can always go to Him as a needy sinner." Mm-hmm. How often do we feel that way? Yeah, you know, I I don't know about you guys. I have days where I'm like, "Am I even a Christian?" Because the promises, because the Lord save such a wretch like me and such a sinner like me, and you know, and I, I remember I could always come to Jesus as a needy sinner. I could always come and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Uh, look upon my poor soul and and forgive me and pardon me of my sins. And Spurgeon speaks that way and points us to Christ. And, oh, he's just so full of the Lord Jesus. Mm-hmm. And so I come in, I would just say, read his sermons, and yeah. um, that would be the best place to start. Mm-hmm.
1: Bobblehead uh, Spurgeon is very proud of you. Today, well, that'll do it for our conversation, Dr. DePrima. Thank you again for your willingness to join us and for all the work you do. For those listening, make sure you keep up with Alex. He's working on a couple of different resources on Spurgeon that will be coming soon, so be sure to follow him. Uh, and we want to thank you for listening to another episode of Pastor Matters. If you found today's episode helpful, consider leaving us a five-star rating and review. We'd appreciate any feedback you'd be willing to give us. As always, it is our mission at the Center for Preaching and Pastoral Leadership to equip and encourage pastors, and I hope we've done that today with our conversation.
2: And again, brothers, be steadfast and always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain.